Ladies and gentlemen, in person and on Zoom, this is great. We have like multiple environments. It's like the metaverse. You guys heard about Facebook? Yeah. Facebook yeah. Changed, yeah. changed its name to Meta? Someone said Meta in Hebrew was death. A death. Yeah. Oh. Oh, Met is death. Yeah. Oh, well. Meta. So. Oh, Meta. Oh, Meta. She's dead. Oh. Ugh. There you go. I guess metaverse. I guess next step is, uh, that's it. By the way, it, it evokes kind of like a matrix-like reality where everyone's just like plugged in and like zombied and there's like an alternative reality. Speaking of matrix, Kabbalah the Matrix begins in December. Join us for that. You don't want to miss it. Always an opportunity to, uh, to do a quick plug. Okay, so this week we begin a brand new Torah portion and the Torah portion is Toldot. Toldot. Not cold toes, that's something else. Tol dot. I only say that because there was once a kid's, kid's uh, record. Record? Before there were CDs or MP3s or whatever. Vinyl. There was a kid, huh? Vinyl. Vinyl, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Back, back in the day. And it was like... It's back. It's it was, it was right. vinyls, for sure vinyls. So there was an album called Kiwi and Tuki. Whatever, it was like a figure. It's like, imagine the chipmunks. Remember, like Alvin and the chipmunks with those like squeaky voices? A Jewish version of it. Whatever. They would sing songs, they would learn Torah lessons, blah, blah, blah. So one kid was like, there was like a, a one kid was like the, the, the goody two shoes, and the other kid was like the rebellious kid. So one kid knew everything, and the other kid knew too much, and the other kid didn't know anything. So whatever, it's like the, the kid that didn't really know, he was like, what, Koltos? No, Toldot. So that, I always think of that in this Yusara portion. So Toldot speaks about the next generation, which is Yitzchak and Rivka. So we have Avram and Sarah, the first, the OG Jewish couple, original Jewish couple. Then they have a son, Yitzchak. Yitzchak gets married to Rivka, which we read about the whole drama of the Shidduch, the match, last week, how how um, Eliezer goes and finds a match, etc. Okay, they get married. And what happens next? That's where this week's Torah portion picks it up. So I'm going to share my screen. And uh, for everyone here in person, it's in the Gunnik edition, at least, on page 156, 157. So you can find it here in the Chumash. Uh, uh, Toldot. So it's chapter 25. Chapter 25, verse 19. Yeah, chapter 25, verse 19, Toldot. Um, so we're, we're, you know, whichever version y'all have is good. Um, again, 156 here in the Gunnik edition um, and 157 in the English. Let's do it. I'm going to do it from the, which version should I, should I do it from? So many, so many choices, so many questions. All right, I'm going to do it from the Gunnik Edition Chumash, and I'm going to reconcile it with, with the online version. And Mike, you have a third version. So, hey, we'll, we'll make it work. It's all the same in the Hebrew. Okay, here we go. The Torah says, Oh, we have Ray, Donna, Sarah, and Hannah. Yeah. Okay, here we go. Let's jump in. It says, And these are the descendants or generations of Yitzchak, Isaac, the son of Avram. And Rashi explains when God, after God gave Avram the name Avraham, then he begot, then he fathered Yitzchak Isaac. So what we see here is that the Torah repeats. The Torah is repetitive. If you look at the opening verse, it says Isaac is the son of Abraham, and Abraham gave birth to Isaac. Well, yeah, that's kind of the way it is. If Isaac is the son of Abraham, then Abraham certainly gave birth to Isaac. So why the repetition? So Rashi explains that the Torah is emphasizing that it happens after the name change. Right? Yitzchak ben Avraham, Avraham holidetz Yitzchak. It's Avraham. It's after his name is changed to Avraham that he gives birth to Yitzchak. He, he gives birth to Isaac. So that's, that's um, one, one interpretation. There's another angle on this um, which tells us that the, the, there were people, and I mentioned this before, there, were, there had been those that had um, been skeptical of Isaac's true paternity. Who is Isaac's real father? Because if, as we know, uh, Avram and Sarah could not have children for a long time. And Avram had a, had a child with, 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 with Hagar, he had Yishmael. So 
you know, clearly he could have children, and the question, uh, sorry, no, so he had a child, but not with Sarah, and the question is, now she suddenly gets pregnant, and right before that, she had, she had been abducted by Avimelech, the king, and the question is, well, who's, who, the paternity question, who's the father? So, the, so our sages tell us that Hashem created a miracle that the face of Isaac, Yitzchak, should look exactly like his father's face. So that no one would have a doubt as to who the father was. That's what it says, Yitzchak, the son of Avram. And Avram fathered Yitzchak. It was clear that Avram had fathered Yitzchak because they looked, they looked identical. Now, the, the question on that, on, on that commentary is, well, isn't that kind of normal that a, child, that a son should look like, a, like their father, more or less? So why did God have to create a miracle? Isn't that nature? The answer is, it's not so natural. Why is it not so natural? Because Avram and Yitzchak, again, we're now getting into the mystical we're getting into the mystical dimension of this of the spiritual understanding. Avram and Yitzchak had different ways to serve Hashem. They served Hashem in different ways, radically different ways. Avram was serve God with chesed, with kindness, with generosity. And Yitzchak was more gvura, was more of an, of, of a, of an introspective, of, a, of an inner work, of digging within, digging wells, digging within, and bring out the best from inside as opposed to just you know, giving, giving, giving. So Avram and Yitzchak had different personalities. And by nature, they, their faces should have looked different. A person who's generous, their face shines. It's a different face than a person who's more, more um, uh, um, introspective. It's a, different, it's a different type of face. So naturally, Avram's face and Yitzchak's face, father and son, should have looked different. But because there were those who were scoffing and mocking and chiding and, 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 and cynical, Hashem made that the, that the face of Yitzchak should look identical to his father, Avram. Make sense? That's what it says. That's what it says. Okay, let's continue. Verse number 20. Now Yitzchak was 40 years old when he took Rivka for himself as a wife. So if, if we're looking at the timeline here, Yitzchak was 40 years old when he got married. Now, and who was Rivka? Who was Rebecca? So she was the daughter of Besuel, the, Arame, the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Lavan or Laban, the, Arame, the Aramean, and he took her to himself for a wife. Now, the, the commentators emphasize that even though Yitzchak married Rivka, who grew up in not so, not so holy an environment, now, we, just to clarify this, Avram had said that he wants his son to marry somebody from his family, from his mishpacha back home. But the reality is that his family was not exactly like him. He was an outlier within the family itself. Like within the genre of his family, he was the monotheist and whatever. So he still wanted his family because they still had a connection. But she grew up steeped in idolatry. Her father was Besuel, the, the Aramean. His, her brother was Lavan. Not, not, the, not, not like, you know, top-tier uh, spiritual uh, talent over here. Nonetheless, nonetheless, the commentaries explain, and Rashi, Rashi emphasizes this, even though Rivka grew up amongst that crowd, she did not learn from their wicked ways. She remained pure. In fact, and I mentioned this, I think, last week, she's like a rose that emerges from between the thorns. So you have thorns, things that are prickly, things that are not so, not so beautiful. And then amidst the thorns, you have, rose, you have a rose. Rivka, Rebecca, was the rose that emerges. And which gives us an understanding that, you know, the environment, our environment certainly has an influence on us. But at the end of the day, we can triumph over our environment, which is interesting because it's a tie-in to what we spoke about yesterday morning at Kabbalah and Coffee, the idea that we, we can't really ultimately blame our upbringing or blame our environment or blame our surrounding. We always have the chance, have the opportunity and have the calling to rise above the challenges. And so Rivka is a great example of someone who did not get bogged down by her environment or didn't use it as an excuse to say, well, you know, I, I can't aspire to anything greater. Rivka aspires to greatness and she is... Indeed, great. Now, let's continue. And now we talk about the, their inability to have children, which, as you've probably realized at this point, is a, is a recurring theme throughout Torah. Verse 21. So Yitzchak, Isaac, prayed, and our sages emphasized repeatedly, 
Tashem to the Lord, to God, opposite his wife. What does it mean, opposite his wife? So Rashi explains, they would stand in opposite corners of the room. So one would stand, so I'm, I'm like, we're in a room right here. So imagine one standing facing that corner and the other one facing that corner. The question is, why were they facing away from each other? And why were they facing the corner in the corners? So I, I once saw a very, I once heard of an, a very interesting interpretation. I'm not saying it's the only interpretation or the most mainstream interpretation, but I, it stuck with me for years. I remember where I heard it. I heard it when I was in yeshiva in London, England, when I was 16 years old. It's going back a few years, like three years. I'm kidding. It's going back a few years, and uh, but it's it's like it's an interpretation that I love because it's I think it's so creative. Remember, this was a time before. The Jews, before um, Israel became the, the homeland, yes, it was the promised land at that point, but it wasn't yet the homeland. Jerusalem hadn't been established. There was no holy temple then. And so there was a question as to which direction to pray. How, where do you pray to God? So imagine if one prays in one corner and one prays in the other corner, covered. you got it covered, right? One, one prays, let's say, okay, that's east. Right, so we have east, Oh, man, where's my bearings? That would be north. Yes? Yeah. East, west, north, south. So if one prays there, that is the... Northwest, course. Is that northwest? Yes. I can't, I, can't, I can't do it. For some reason, I can't do it. Okay. So northwest and southeast. North, so you have all your directions covered. Imagine if one prayed, if they both prayed the same direction... It wouldn't have worked. If one prayed, you know, east and the other one prayed east and west, it would only have two, di two, two directions covered. But by praying in opposite each other in the corners of the, in, in each in one corner of the room, they cover all four directions. So that's an interesting insight of one son. It stuck with me. Again, I can't say that that's definitely why they, 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 they did that. But nonetheless, that's, uh, that's, that's one take on it. Um, another understanding of why they prayed opposite each other is, because like I just explained, Avram and Yitzchak, Abraham and Isaac, that had different spiritual personas, Isaac, Yitzchak, and his wife also had different spiritual personas. They approached things differently. And so the Torah is reminding us that although we might be different, we might even be opposites, we all have a spiritual connection, and our, pow and our prayers are powerful, each in our own way. So that's another angle on this. So, Rabbi? yes. Rabbi? Uh, just back up for a second, if sure. you don't mind. When you said, you know, the recurring theme. Yes. I mean, why do you think? I know I actually thought of that at the beginning of the parsha before you mentioned it. And so, why do you think that is? Emphasis. Um, why is it a recurring theme? Our sages say, I, I, I don't know how I feel about this personally, but I'll tell you what our sages say. Our sages say that God likes the prayers of the righteous. So essentially, he gives them a difficult time with blessings. That's what it says. I know, but unfortunately, you, as we all know, it doesn't translate for us today. <laughs> that strategy, those strategies, you know, necessarily. Uh, necessarily, right. So I, 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 if, I, I don't know that I feel that I'm qualified on any level to explain God's plan, right? So I'm just going to say I have no idea. I can only tell you what it says in the books. It says that, that, uh, that for the biblical characters, for the biblical, for the matriarchs and the patriarchs, sometimes they experience challenges in their blessings because God wanted, wanted them to evoke it through prayer and that's, and that's how it was going to happen. As to, as to God's plan in any other situation, that would be speculation on my part and I don't feel, again, qualified or comfortable to, uh, to speculate. I, I, I can't, I don't know. But that's what it says with regards to the patriarchs and matriarchs. Mind you, in those cases, it worked out, right? It, it's, that's what it says in cases with a happy ending. So I guess that there's, there's a little bit of an easier way to say that, that, well, it all worked out at the end. So it was just about, you know, getting more prayers in and then finally getting that blessing. I, I yeah, I, I, it's, 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 it's one of those, it, it's, it's another area in which we can say this is, this is God's plan. Rabbi? Ray. Um, okay, two things. Um, okay, one was that um, he took his wife to pray with her at Mount Moriah, which was the site of the Akeda. Nice. And he knew that he would have children because Hashem had promised that Abraham's destiny would be fulfilled through Isaac's offspring. Right. So Good point. He, 
he begs Hashem that it be realized right. through her through as Rivka. a worthy woman that stood opposite him. Beautiful. I like that. According to uh, I like it. So, uh, Ray, let me elaborate on that. So, basically, what Ray is pointing out very accurately, and it's from Sferno, is that God had already promised Avram that he would have descendants and many descendants. Remember, like the stars of the sky and like the sand of the sea and all that. So, there had already been a promise of, of descendants, and there had already been a clarification that those descendants or that, that, that legacy would happen through Yitzchak and not Yishmael. So, now we know that Yitzchak has to have kids. So Yitzchak knew that he was going to have kids, but he was having difficulty with his wife having kids. So the prayer was, according to Svarno, as Ray is, Ray is quoting, that, the, that this blessing happened with her and not with someone else. As Avram had had difficulty and had a child through Hagar, and, and then finally Sarah. So this was like, let's, let's pray for this blessing to be manifest, to be realized in this way with this, with this match. Good. Good. Okay. Let's, conti let's continue. So uh, we're actually in the middle of verse 21. So verse 21 says, So Yitzhak prayed, Isaac prayed to Hashem, to God, opposite his wife, because she was barren. And the Torah says, God accepted his prayer, and his wife Rivka, his wife Rebecca, conceived. Okay. So now she gets pregnant. What, what happens, though, as we know in the story, is she, they get a little bit more than they bargained for. They were praying for a child. They didn't get a child. They got two children, right? They got, they got double, double or nothing, right? They got, they got double, uh, double the blessing. Double trouble. Double trouble. Oh, that's, that's the phrase. That, that's the cliche. That's the phrase. I was looking for double trouble. Why, why do we say double trouble? Because of the next verse, verse 22. Right? The Torah says. And the children struggle in, struggled inside of her. And she said, if it's so, why am I like this? Or according to Rashi, if the pain of this pregnancy is so great, then why, then why did I want this in the first place? What was I thinking? I didn't know what this... It's kind of like, what's the phrase, the other phrase? Be careful what you ask for, you might just get it. Right? Be careful what you wish for, you might just get it. So what did she want? She wanted, she wanted children. Well, now she got two, two for one, and now she is in a lot of, whether it's physical pain or other types of pain, clearly there's, there's, there's discomfort over here. And the way we understand this, according to the classic commentaries, is it's not just she had a physically a difficult, a, a, a difficult pregnancy physically, it's that spiritually, psychologically, and emotionally, it was a very difficult experience. Why? So famously, I'll share the famous explanation that's brought down in our sages. When she would pass a house of Torah study, she would feel a stirring inside. When she passed a place of idol worship, she felt a, stir a stirring inside. And she said, what's going on here? I feel like whatever's inside of me is drawn toward Torah, and toward idolatry. So which one is it? Is this, is this child going to be a champion of Torah study or a champion in the other side? And it just, it, it, was, it, was, it was tumultuous, tumultuous. There was a lot of turmoil. There was a lot of struggle inside of her. And she could not understand what was the identity, what was the nature of this child. So what does she do in verse 22? At the end. So she went, I'm going to read the online version because it's straightforward, and she went to inquire of the Lord. She went to ask and to seek guidance from God. Now Rashi explains, which is in our other translation in the, the Gunnah Kedishan, she went to the yeshiva of shame to ask God what was going to happen. What, what's, what's the deal over here? So let me explain what's going on here. Shame was one of the, as we know, one of the sons of Noah, one of the three sons. He lived many hundreds of years. We also encountered shame. Do you remember when we encountered shame? Remember in the war between the five kings and the four kings? Oh, yeah. When Avram gets into the fray to rescue his nephew Lot? Lot had to be rescued multiple times. Once from the destruction of Sodom, but before that, 
when there was a world, world war that broke out and Lot was taken captive, Avram gets involved and he pushes back the four kings, rescues his nephew. And remember there was the king, Malki Tzedek, the king of Shalem, came to greet him and he gave him a tithe. Abraham gave him a tithe of everything that he had uh, collected in the battle. Basically, who is this Malkitzah, the king of Shalem? It was the, 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 the spiritual leader of Jerusalem. Shalem, Yerushalayim, Shalem. It was called Shalem. And who was that? Shame. This very shame. So Shame was a monotheist. He was the son of Noah. He had been through the flood himself. He had survived. He was righteous. He's the father of the Semites. Shame, right? Semite is Shemite. comes from shame. So... Shame was a prophet. He was a righteous person, a spiritual person. He's not considered to be the first Jew because he wasn't the first one to spread the gospel, so to speak, to spread the message. That was Abraham who had also studied with shame. But Abraham took it viral. Abraham took it public. Shame did not. So now Rivka, Rebecca, is pregnant. She's not sure what's going on. She feels like there's some sort of spiritual disturbance that's going on inside of her. So she seeks not medical advice, but divine advice. She goes to the Shiva of shame. She speaks to shame to ask him as a prophet what the deal is. Why couldn't she go to her husband, who's also uh, you know, someone who God spoke to? Why couldn't she go to her father-in-law? Was her father-in-law still around? Was Avram still alive? Avram was still alive at that point, yes. So why didn't she go to her father-in-law? I guess sometimes you need to consult an outsider. Maybe a little too close to home. So she went to shame. She went to shame to ask for neutral, this, a neutral, someone neutral, right? Someone, someone without, you know, skin in the game, directly skin in the game. So she goes to consult with shame. And so she says, I need, I need some perspective here. What's going on? What's happening? Let's continue verse 23. And the Lord said to her through shame, right? Through, the, through this prophecy, so the Lord said to her the following, There are two nations, two nations are in your womb. And two kingdoms will separate from your innards. And one kingdom will become mightier than the other kingdom, and the elder will serve the younger. Talk about a, talk about a message. I mean, compacted in this one verse is the story of history, right? Two nations, it's on a, it's on a spiritual, uh, religious level, historical level, sociological level, and internal, spiritual, psychological level, level as well. Two nations are in your womb. Two kingdoms will separate from your innards. So it's not just that there's two individuals, it's two kingdoms, in other words, it's two, these are not just two people. It's not, it's not, the message is not simply you have twins, hence the confusion. No. And it's not just you have two right, twins. In other words, two children will be born to you. It's two kingdoms, two nations will be born of these individuals. These are not just individuals. They are personas. They are archetypes. They are, they are templates for movements that will diverge one from the other. One, when one rises, the other will fall, right? One, one will become mighty than the other, and the elder ultimately will serve the younger. And that, of course, is a reference to Esau, to Esau, ultimately serving the younger one, Jacob. And that precipitates the drama with the blessings and buying the blessings, the firstborn rights, and taking the blessings by dressing up as his brother, which we'll get to um, as the story unfolds. But at the beginning, even before they're born, we have, this note, we have this prophecy of two realities, two different dimensions being born. I, I, I also want to jump in because I mentioned that this is not just true uh, historically and, 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 and religiously. This is also true in an internal way, spiritually. It says in the book of Tanya that every single one of us are Rebecca in the sense that we all have twins inside. And who are the twins? A higher soul and a lower soul, godly soul and animal soul, higher self, lower self. Well, we all have a yearning, we all have that force inside that pulls us toward Torah study and the force inside that pulls us toward 
other stuff. We all have that, those dueling forces inside that pull us into different directions. And oftentimes we feel like Rebecca before she goes to the oracle. We feel like Rebecca before she went to shame. We feel like Rebecca saying, what's wrong with me? One moment I'm holy, the next moment I'm not so holy. So who am I? What am I? Am I a fraud? Am I not a fraud? Am I, what's my real identity? And the message that she got and the message that Tanya says that each one of us ought to internalize is both are true, both narratives are true because we have both paths inside of us. We have a godly soul and an animal soul and they're equally powerful, they're equally active and they're equally kicking and screaming. I don't know if screaming is the right term, but they're equally kicking inside of us, which means we all have twins. We're all pregnant with twins. We have dueling forces, a force that pulls us higher and a force that pulls us lower. The Esau, the Esau pulls us lower, and the Jacob, the Yaakov, pulls us higher, and that's, that's our reality. Okay. Rabbi, that makes it more universal perspective on what we were discussing a few moments ago. So the concept is not specific to... To childbirth, right. right. And to Rebecca, right, exactly. Yeah, it's our story. Her story is our story. And what's, what's interesting is that this somehow gives her comfort, right? She, it says, she says to herself, if so, like, why did I want this? Or, or even a, a harsher translation, which some translated is, if so, why do I even want to be here? In other words, it's like, if I have this struggle, and if I have this pregnancy struggle inside of me, so then do I even want to go on? which is a much more severe type of, uh, of reaction to it. But with this, we can understand how she was soothed by this message because how it, the, the question is, how does, this, how does the oracle, how does Shame's message, how does that help her? So now she knows that she's pregnant with twins and that's what's causing the struggle. So it still feels uncomfortable. It still feels um, you know, uh, diametrically opposed. So how does that soothe? How does that help? And the answer is because it contextualizes the struggle. And what it says is you're not defined by either one. You have both inside of you. Let's just speak about us. Forget about her and the literal pregnancy. Let's speak about us for a second. If a person would, would feel that the same I, let's say I feel, the same I is holy and unholy, then I feel like what's wrong with me, right? Like is, is my mo are my moments of holiness of any value or do they get destroyed in my moments of unholiness, right? In other words, if it's the same I, then number one, what's wrong with me? How can I be in both places at the same time? And number two, does one automatically and necessarily undo the, does the fall undo the gains by the other? And I might say yes, and if so, then I'm giving up. But when what Tanya innovates with this understanding of the two souls, the two operating systems, the godly soul, the animal soul, the higher self, the lower self, is understanding that these are two different forces inside and the I is the arbiter, is the judge that, that chooses which one to channel. So who am I? I'm the one that allows the expression of either one or the other at any given moment in time. At any given moment in time, I can choose to think, speak, or act upon either my godly self or my animal self. But I don't need to own my godly self or my animal self. Those are two forces that God puts inside of me. Which means that my gains are not eliminated by my falls. Because one is coming from one place and one is coming from the other place. And one, they don't, they don't contradict each other. Does that make sense? Is that sort of clear? I feel like I'm not doing 100% justice to what it says in Tanya, but basically it's trying to soothe the conflicted soul. The person that comes, let's say, to the author of, to the author of Tanya, he says, I've been working on myself and studying Torah and praying every day for 40 years, and I'm still confronted with distracting thoughts. When I stand the Amida prayer, I still can't focus the whole way through. Should I give up? And the answer is, you're doing fine. Those extraneous distracting thoughts that come to you in the middle of the Amida, middle of the prayer, are not you. They're coming from the animal soul. In other words, you have twins. So your godly soul is praying. It doesn't mean that your animal soul doesn't exist. It's now going to kick and scream. 
In fact, I saw recently, oh, maybe I saw it last night on the kinos, on the, on the, uh, the, the broadcast, one of the clips that they had of the Rebbe. The Rebbe says, when you face opposition in your divine service, you know that you're doing it right. That's essentially what the Rebbe says. When the more, the more um, internal even and external, the more pushback you have, the more you know that you're accomplishing. Because the, the, the negative energy gets very um, threatened by spiritual gains. So the more we're gaining spiritually, the more the other side has to kick and scream and make, make a whole big, uh, big fuss. So when you, feel that, when you feel a lot of opposition, you know you're on the right path. That's when it's good to be stubborn. It's good to be stubborn. It's good to stand up to that and say, you know what? But, it, but also it reframes it. And that's what happens. That's what I'm trying to say is that's what's going on with Rivka. The, the oracle, I'm calling him the oracle, the prophet, shame, his message to her doesn't end the problem, but it frames, it frames the situation. It doesn't end the struggle. It's not like by finding out that she's pregnant with twins and two nations, two kingdoms, that, oh, suddenly there's no more struggle inside. There's a, the struggle is, is, is still going, and it's only going to get worse. But, but, it fra- right, but it frames it. It frames it. It says that there's two different realities, and that's why there's a struggle. And so by understanding that within us, it can frame it as well. Make sense? Ray. Okay, so... It says that um, there were two regimes, one espousing morality and justice, and the other standing for license and barbarity. And they cannot coexist. So they're always going to be in conflict until one comes to dominate the other, whether through victory on the battlefield or in the contest for man's mind. Good. I like that. I like that. Very well put. Very well put. We've seen over, over the centuries how you, when, when Asaph, not literally but figuratively, when the force of Asaph used their hands, they could be victorious over righteousness. But ultimately we believe in the triumph of ideals, in the triumph of light over darkness, and that is the ultimate victory for the Jacob, the Yaakov persona, over the Asaph. Good. All right, let's, let's read what happens next. So she's pregnant, she gets a perspective, and now she can, now she can um, uh, what's the word? Tolerate, I don't know if tolerate is, uh, is the right word, but now she can at least contextualize and understand, and understand her pregnancy. So let's continue. We're up to verse number 24. Okay, verse 24 says, the term of her pregnancy was complete, and look, behold, there were twins in her womb, just like, just as predicted. This is before sonograms and whatever. Sonogram? Did I get that right? Yeah? Okay. This is before that. Huh? Sonogram, right? Ultrasound. It's a sonogram. Same thing? Could be. Could be. Of course, I have to say my joke, which I've said many times. What do you call twins? Womates. Womates. Oh, cute. Oh, man. I know. It doesn't get better, no matter how many times I say it. Okay. So here we go. There were twins. 25. The first one came out reddish. Here online it's translated as ruddy. I don't know what ruddy is, but uh, is ruddy red? Okay. There we go. Ruddy and ruddy. Ruddy and ready. Sounds, sounds almost the same. And he was completely covered in hair. Like a complete, co- like a coat of hair. Like a fur coat of hair. Like a fur coat of hair. That's a lot of hair. That's what Rashi emphasized, or at least this translation has. And what did they name him? They named him Esav or Esau. Esav. Okay. Now. Esav. Okay, interesting. Rashi says, why was he called Esav? Because he was like... He was, like a, he was like a complete person. He was complete in his hair, like a person of, of advanced age. He had, he had a full head of hair. He had hair on his body. He was like fully grown with hair. Okay. So they named him Asaph. Let's continue. Verse 26. And afterwards, what happens next? 
And afterwards, his brother emerged. And his hand, the, this second brother's, the second son's hand, was grasping Aesop's heel. Yeah. yeah. So what they name him, they named him, or in this translation, according to Rashi, God named him Yaakov, or Jacob. Why Yaakov? We'll use the Hebrew word for a minute, because it works in the Hebrew. Why Yaakov? Yaakov, Yaakov is related to the word Akev, Yaakov Akev. Akev means heel, and he was holding on to his older brother's heel. So imagine the first one comes out, right? First one is born, and the second one holding on to the heel of the first. That's it. Catching a ride, huh? Family, we had one who was hairy from the beginning. Yeah. One smooth, I can't get a beard, losing his hair on top. Wow. And yet, the first one out, they're both of them are very, I got, I'm proud of both of them. Yeah. They're both, you know, very sensitive, worry about the world, they're all doing good, even right. with the hair, without the hair. Right. Yeah. So it's not, it's not always the hair, it's the personality. But Ace have had that winning combination of not only a lot of hair, but also a ruddy personality, whatever that means, but a, uh, a, a very earthly, earthly personality. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right, Mark is joining. Welcome, Mark. Okay. So now, and how old was Isaac when he gave birth to them? So the Torah tells us. And Isaac, Yitzchak, was 60 years old when she, his wife, gave birth to them. So how old was he when he got married? We said 40, right? Isaac was 40. We had that a few verses ago. Isaac was 40, and they finally had children... <coughs> 20 years later when he was 60 years old. Okay, let's continue verse 27. This is the, this is the critical, uh, um, this is a very critical verse, 27. The boys grew up, and as Rashi says, their differences became recognizable. What, how did they distinguish from each other? Esau, Esau was a man who knew how to trap. He understood hunting. And as the commentaries say, he knew how to hunt not just animals, but also how to trap people with his mouth. He knew how to, how to you know, um, take advantage of people. And he was a man of the field who enjoyed actual hunting as well. While Jacob, Yaakov, was an honest person, an innocent man, dwelling in tents. And that is referring to the yeshiva of Shem and Aver. He went back to the yeshiva. He went, he studied in the yeshiva that his mother had visited while he was but a fetus um, in utero before he was born. So he actually studies in this yeshiva. And that's, again, a message about the, um, the, uh, the prevalence of this yeshiva. This was an actual yeshiva that people studied at. Yitzchak stu um, Yaakov studied in it. Avram had studied in it. All right, let's continue. Uh, what were the teachings at that point since we hadn't been given the Torah? The spiritual dimension of Torah sands this, the, physical, um, the physical handle. So I'll give you an example. You ask a really good question, and it gives me an opportunity to share an analogy that I don't, of, that I don't often share, so I want to jump in on this. Imagine you're teaching a child math for the first time, and you want to teach them uh, addition, basic addition. One plus one equals two. So you tell them, my yingle, my little boy, or my maidle, my little girl, here you go, you should know this. One plus one equals two. They're going to look at you like you're crazy. One plus one is two. What does that, what does that mean? So I have, I'm being honest here. Riva tells me, she comes to me, what's sidder plus phone? Sidder plus phone. I'm like, I don't even know. Uh, it's not an equation, but I'm like, because, huh? Safari. Safari. No, because she sees me sometimes. I'll dive in if I'm not, if I'm if I'm in a place without a sitter. I'll pull out my phone. I have a sitter app on my phone. So what's sitter plus phone? But, but but she already is doing some math. She's in a, a Montessori preschool, and they already they have these beads and whatever. They have their technique for learning math. So she's already learning math on some level. But you tell a child, tell a four-year-old child. One plus one is two. Might as well tell them uh, you know, UFOs have landed. I, they have no idea what you're talking about, right? One plus one is two. Yeah. What does that even mean? So what do you do? You take two apples, 
You take, an, you, you take one apple, this is one apple. See, one apple, one apple. And here's another apple, one apple. How many apples do you have now? One, two, two apples. Oh, mazel tov, you've taught math. But the child doesn't know one plus one equals two. They know apple, apple, two apples. That's what they know. We study the Torah of apples. And before, they studied the Torah of one plus one equals two. In other words, they study the concept, the spiritual concepts that underlie Torah. And we study the physical manifestation that Torah takes on. Does that make sense? So we study the themes of Torah as they're manifest in characters and stories and physical laws, whereas they studied it in a more spiritual way. It's the same understanding of how the angels study Torah in heaven. Or how it says that the, the Torah preceded the world by 2,000 years. How do you have Torah before the world 2,000 years? Well, before a physical universe, how do you even have Torah? Torah speaks about all these physical things and, and, and the world and people and all this stuff. How does, how does but, the Torah precede the world? Was it, just a, was it innate in everybody or were there a few righteous people? No, it sounded like there was a system and there was a philosophy and there was a spiritual wisdom that was only studied by a few, by those that were interested at least in studying it. Wasn't it Abraham's? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Abraham, yeah, Abraham studied it. Yeah, absolutely. Abraham studied it, but it was also studied before Abraham because Shem had studied it. So the understanding is, you know, Abraham, not only did he study Torah, he wrote, he wrote books. According to our tradition, Sefer Yitzirah, which is one of the first books of Kabbalah ever written, was penned by none other than Abraham, which is pretty cool. Sefer Yitzirah, book of formation. So... What's the point? The point is that they study Torah in whatever form. Maybe it didn't look exactly like our Torah. Maybe it did. Maybe it was prophetic. But even if it didn't, it was the spiritual values that were underlying this. Now, it says also that Abraham fulfilled all the mitzvot before they were given. But as we know already from other stories, they didn't necessarily fulfill it in the same exact way that we fulfill it. Like it says that Jacob fulfilled the mitzvah of tefillin when he peeled the sticks by the animal trough, which happens later with his Jacob and his uncle turned Jacob and his uncle turned father-in-law. Whatever, complicated story. And it, so they were negotiating over who gets what animals, and he peeled sticks. You know, when you peel a stick of the bark, you peel the bark of the stick, you might make rings, and those rings might look like the black tefillin against the arm, right? The tefillin against the arm looks like rings. Kind of like when you, when you peel, when you strip the, uh, the bark, uh, the, the, the stick of wood of its bark. So the point is like this. They study Torah in some form. They did mitzvot in some form. Is it exactly the same as we have it? Likely not. So the Torah like sort of perfected and codified, codified things. I don't know if it perfected more. Uh, codified. Or it, 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 it just, I think it just, we would say it, it took on a physical garb. Right, it took on. A, it assumed a a more physical, material form, tangible form, as opposed to more spiritual form. But they had they had what to study. They were studying one plus one equals two, and not apple plus apple is two apples. They were studying it on that level. Thank okay, you. sure. Good question. Now let's go back to the text because we're about to learn about parental preference. So the Torah tells us, verse 28, Yitzchak, the father, loved Esav because he provided his mouth with game. In other words, he was a hunter, was Esav, or Esau, and he hunted animals, and then he gave his dad food. So that's great. But Rebekah, Rivka, loved Yaakov, loved Jacob. So the, the father loved the older twin, and the mother loved the younger twin. Okay, by the way, Probably not a great idea to play favorites. Nonetheless, this is the way it works. Torah is being honest. Yitzchak loved Esav, and Rivka loved Yaakov. I told you before they were opposites. Remember I said they prayed opposite? They, were, they had different spiritual personas. We see this also reflected in, in where they were drawn. I'm going to share a, a, a very important point in a moment, which hopefully can, uh, contextualizes this entire story. Um, but we'll do that soon. Verse 29. So on the day that Avram, that Abraham passed away, fast forwarding a few years, on the day Abraham passed away, Yaakov, Jacob, 
was cooking a lentil stew to feed his father. Or, according to this uh, the translation online, a pottage. What's a pottage? I don't know. But the tr- I always remember hearing it as a lentil stew, so let's stick with the lentils. But what is it? It's French. Potage, where is it? Uh, top of 161. No, 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 it's not. It's, it's in the online. No, we have lentil here on 161 ah. in the Chumash. But online, it's, it's pottage. But isn't that like... Um, potage? Like P-O-T-A-G-E? P-O-T-T-A-G-E. Like it means soup. Soup in French. Oh, it's a soup. But what, what type of soup? Any specific type? No, because you say potage de prie, chicken soup. Potage de poisson. Perfect. Good. So like a soup stew. Okay. Probably like a potter. Okay. So it works. Good. So a, le- a lentil stew. Basically a chalant. Basically a chalant. He was cooking chalant. Yeah. Maybe without the meat. Maybe without the potatoes. Whatever. He was cooking a lentil stew. Why was he cooking a lentil stew? Because that's, uh, he was feeding his father who was mourning. Mourning the, fa- the passing of his father. In other words, Isaac... His father passed away. And so Abraham passed away. So Isaac was mourning. And so his son, the grandson of Avram, Jacob, Yaakov, was cooking a meal for his father. What happens is... It was red, by the way. It was red. Okay? A red lentil stew. Mm -hmm. And Asaph comes home from the field. Right? That's when... So in the middle of Amitamol, Asaph, Esau, came home from the field. And he was exhausted. He was tired. He was faint. From his activities, Rashi says his murderous activities. He had done things that he should not do, so he was very, very famished. Verse 30, Esau says to Yaakov, says to Jacob, pour some of this red stuff, this red potage, this red stew down my throat because I am so exhausted, I'm so faint. By the way, parenthetically, the Torah says, that's why he was given the name Edom or Edom. Edom. Edom means in Hebrew red. Edom is red. So that's why Esav, Esav is also synonymous with Edom. There's a nation called Edom. Edom means red. The nation of red is Esav's family. Why is he called red? He got the nickname Big Red because of, not big, I just added that in, but red because he, uh, he asked for this red lentil stew. Right. Let's continue. So he's asking for the food. So Jacob, Yaakov, says to him, and he, Yaakov, Jacob, knew that his, that his older brother was not fit to perform the firstborn um, obligations, the spiritual obligations of being the firstborn of Isaac. So he said to him the following. He said, sell me your birthright. Um, sell me as of this day your birthright, which Rashi says, sell me your birthright so that I, I own it indisputably like daylight. In other words, like the day is day, like it's clear when the day is the day, it's not, it's not night, it's day. Sell me your birthright with a clear document that you have sold your right to the firstborn. Esau replied, Esau replies, look, he says, I am going to die, which according to Rashi means with my lifestyle, I'm going to be punishable by death if I retain the right to sacrificial service. In other words, if I try to hold on to my position as firstborn, I'm never going to live up to that, to that calling. Or physically, I'm going to die a faint. That's the simple explanation. I'm giving you the, the deeper interpretation. He says, so why do I need this birthright? Either if I'm physically going to die of hunger, so then I can't be firstborn, or spiritually I'm not fit, so why do I need it? So yes, it's yours. And Jacob said, Yaakov said to him, swear to me. Swear to me as of this day. In other words, swear that I own it indisputably like daylight, like the day is day. Swear to me today. So he swore to him, and he sold his birthright to Yaakov, to Jacob. So here the Torah says clearly that Esau sold his birthright. So I always get every single year as these stories unfold, everyone gets up in arms. How could Yaakov take the blessings of his brother and dress up like him and pretend to be? Everyone gets up in arms once again on an annual basis, a clockwork. Everyone gets upset. How could Yaakov, our patriarch, steal blessings? And the answer is he didn't steal anything. He sold, Esau sold it to him prior. What I'm referring to is when he dressed up like him and, and, and went into his father Isaac when Isaac was passing away. That's later on. That's decades later. But here's the point. What precipitates the foundation, the legal foundation for this 
is right here. The legal foundation for this is right here where Esau, Esau sells the birthright to Yaakov, to Jacob. All right, and Jacob delivers, verse 34. And Yaakov, Jacob, gave bread and a pottage of lentils and lentil stew to Esau, who ate and drank. Then he got up and left. And Esau, Esau despised the whole idea of the birthright, the whole idea of serving God. He didn't want it. He didn't need it. He sold it for a bunch of barsht. Or not barsht, he sold it for a bunch of beans. That's it. That's it. He didn't want it. He didn't need it. He didn't value it. He sold it for red stew. And the question for us, let me just jump in with a personal application. The question for us is, are we selling out sometimes our spiritual identity for a pot of beans? Do we sometimes compromise our values for money or for stuff? Do we sell out for what's truly value? Do we sell out what's truly valuable for stuff that's here today, gone tomorrow? It's an open-ended question, something that we can all ponder on our own. Okay, back inside. Let's continue with the next chapter, chapter 26. Rabbi, I'm yes. sorry. Rashi gives the explanation of why lentils. What is the significance of lentils? Does he say it's round for morning? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, the lentil bean is round, which signifies the cycle of life, which is why it was used as a dish for the mourners to eat. Yeah, so we have that tradition also to have round foods. Um, when, God forbid, somebody is sitting shiva, somebody's in a state of mourning, the tradition is to eat and to cook round foods. Um, okay. For my daughter's bar mitzvah in Israel, we went to a restaurant, kosher restaurant in Jerusalem. And eucalyptus, I was looking if they still have it. And yeah. they have the Jacob and Esau special. No way. No way. That's good. I'm going to repeat that. Can I repeat that? Okay, so hold on. So when Sandrine's daughter went to Israel for her bat mitzvah, so they went to a restaurant, and the restaurant had the Yaakov and Esau special. Yeah, they still have it. Eucalyptus, I really recommend if you're ever in a <laughs> And it's basically a lentil, a, lent, a, a, a dish of lentil, lentil stew. Lentil stew. What's it called? The ya Yaakov and Esau? Uh, so, uh, so in English, you know, the English menu said uh, the Jacob and Esau special. The Jacob and Esau special. There you go. I remember. That, that's a restaurant that's having fun. I like that. I like that in a restaurant. That's cute. That's good. I feel like you could have a biblical. You, I feel like you could have yeah, a restaurant, very, very biblically themed. You could have like Abraham and the angels menu, you know, with whatever he gave them, tongue and whatnot. Um, yes, Mark. Rashi has interesting spin on uh, why Esau sold his birthright, didn't care for it, because when he says, "I'm going to die," Rashi says the birthright of the firstborn is gradually wandering away. For the sacrificial service, which apparently is a birthright, will not be performed by the firstborn for all time because the tribe of Levi will take it. Nice. Furthermore, Esau said, what is the nature of this service? And Jacob said to him, several prohibitions and punishments and death penalties are associated with it, such as that which we have learned. The following are included. Uh, those who have performed the temple service after having drunk wine. Those who performed the service having long hair. And Esau said, I'm going to die through the birthright. Right. In other words, he had long hair and he'd been drinking. Right. Uh, if so, what, what's, what is there in it that I would want? Good. Good. Yeah, which goes to show you, if you're not willing to give up the long hair and the drinking, maybe, maybe don't be a Kohen. Maybe don't be a... Right. So he was just basically saying, look, what do I need it for? That's not my lifestyle. I, I, my lifestyle is not compatible with this firstborn birthright sacrificial service situation. It's only going to get me in trouble. I'd actually rather not have it. It's a burden to me. So he sells it. But again, I just want to be, I want to be very clear here because, and I'm going to double down on what I said before. Every year I get the same pushback. Not, not right now. Later on in the narrative, when Jacob ends up taking the blessings from his brother by dressing up like his brother. How could he do that? Jacob is dishonest. That's the foundation of our people, dishonesty. And the Torah preempts that. There's no dishonesty. There was deception because they didn't tell the father. But that's another question. But as far as him legitimately getting the blessings, they were legitimately his. The firstborn blessings were legitimately his. They were sold. It was a contract. It was a deal. And that's it. 
Um, I once heard the statement, you can sell your birth rate for a bunch of, for a, for a, a, a bowl of beans, but you can't buy it for a bowl of beans. That ultimately, Yaakov has to earn it on his own, right? So Esau, Esau can, can say, I don't want it, and he can like let it go for nothing, but you can't buy it for nothing. To, to really buy it, to really get that, to get that connection with Hashem, to spirit, the spiritual connection, it, uh, it, requires, it requires effort on our part. All right, let's, let's finish off the first reading, chapter 26. We got a few more verses. Chapter 26. Once again, another recurring theme. I mentioned the recurring theme earlier. Another recurring theme is famine. Um, this is already our second famine in Torah, second or third, and later on we'll have one in the times of Joseph. So famines are also a biblical staple, if you will. All puns intended. Uh, chapter 26, Genesis. There was a famine in the land. Beside for the first famine, uh, that was in the days of Avraham. Uh, so that means this is the second famine. And Yitzchak, Isaac, went to Avimelech, king of the Philistines, in Gerar, or to Gerar. Once again, we have Avimelech, the Philistine king, in Gerar, that plays a role in this conversation. Avram, Abraham, and Sarah had already had their own interactions with him. He had abducted Sarah and wanted to be with her, and Hashem had made it and inflicted him with physical illness, and he wasn't able to be with her, and then he claimed, I didn't know, it's not my fault, you set me up, okay, all that stuff. But now, next generation, Isaac finds himself also with Avimelech. And by the way, Abraham and Avimelech had made a peace treaty between them and had agreed upon certain things, and now Isaac is going to the very same king, Avimelech. So the Lord appeared to him, God appeared to him and said, do not go down to Egypt. God says to Isaac, Yitzchak, do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land that I will tell you about. Which means, stay in Israel. As, we, as we've uh, described multiple times, Isaac was not permitted to leave the land of, of Israel. He was a holy offering, and thus he was not able to leave the land. Um, rather, God says to Yitzchak, to Isaac, settle in this land, sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and I will bless you. For to you, or for I will give all these lands to you and to your descendants, and I will uphold the oath that I swore to Abraham, to Avram, your father. That's more or less what we have here in the translation as well. Okay, verse number four, and I will multiply your descendants, your seed, like the stars of the heavens. This is probably the third time we've had a reference to the stars, at least three. And I will give your descendants in your seed, all these lands, all the nations of the earth will give blessings to each other by comparing themselves to your descendants. All of the nations of the earth will bless themselves by your seed. Okay. Verse 5, why all of this is because, why? Because Abraham, Avram, listened, hearkened to my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes and my instructions. Um, or in the English here, he guarded, Avram listened to my voice when I tested him. He guarded my secondary prohibitions that protect the person from transgressing biblical prohibitions, my rational commands, my super rational commands, and my instructions in the oral law. Basically, Avram kept all the mitzvot and all the prohibitions and all the fences and all the, the, extra, the extra careful prohibitions and mitzvot, all because he loved me, says Hashem, and thus I will make sure that you are blessed and blessed now and into the future. Okay. I feel like doing let's check out the second reading. I know we're a little bit past the time, but let's see if we can take a quick look at this. It's short. It's very short. Let's do this quickly. It's one narrative, and then you know what? I'm, let's get through the narrative, and I may add some extra insight on this tomorrow. I also want to add some insight on, on the whole the duality of of Esau and Jacob, Esau uh, and Yaakov, which we're going to deal with tomorrow as well. But let's do this narrative. It says in Isaac, uh, chapter 26, verse 6, Isaac, Yitzchak, dwelt in, settled in Gerar. When the local men asked about his wife, he said, following in the footsteps of his father, he said, she's my sister, because he was afraid to say she is my wife, because he said to himself, he reasoned, you know, less the men, perhaps the local men will kill me because of Rebecca, because of Rebecca, because she is of pleasant appearance. Um, okay, then it came to pass, when he had been there for many days, 
that Avi, and he felt it was safe to stop pretending as if Rivka, Rebecca was his sister. Avimelech, the king of the Philistines, looked through his window and he saw, look, behold, Yitzchak was courting, well, here it says jesting online, jesting, not jesting like, hey, knock, knock, who's there? Jesting means courting uh, romantically, being playful with Rivka, with Rebecca, his wife, which doesn't make sense for a sister. So Avimelech called, summoned Yitzchak, and he said, she's really your wife, right? Busted, she's your wife. How could you have said she's my sister? Yitzchak said, Isaac said to him, because I said to myself, perhaps I'll die because of her. Now, this is literally history repeating itself because this is exactly what Avram and Sarah did with the same Avimelech. Now, I don't know if it's the same Avimelech because it might be like Pharaoh, it might be all the kings were called Avimelech. It's possible. But either way, it's the same, the same narrative, the same, like, the same verbiage here. She's my sister, she's really your wife, etc. Yitzhak said, uh, I said, perhaps I'll die because of her. Verse 10, what have you done to us? Avimelech said, what have you done to us? I, the king, the highest of the people, might easily have lain with your wife, and if I had done so, you would have brought guilt upon us. Again, this is the second time that Avimelech, or a Avimelech, or an Avimelech, has dealt with this. With Sarah, it was the same thing. You set me up, you almost got me in trouble, I almost was with her, and if I was with her, I would have been really in trouble. So he says to Yitzhak the same thing. I... I might have been with her, not knowing that she was your wife, and that would have been that would put me in a guilty place. So why'd you do this? And you shouldn't have done this, etc. Verse eleven. And Avimelech instructed all the people. He commanded the people, saying, "Whoever touches this man or his wife will be put to death." He basically says, "Stay away from these people." Yitzchak and Rivka, Isaac and Rebekah. Verse twelve. Yitzchak sowed in that land, which was not as fertile as the main part of the land of Israel. But he, he sowed nonetheless in that land that was not the best land, and he found even in that year, which was a bad year for crops, that the land yielded a hundred times, a hundredfold, a hundred times more than average, and God the Lord blessed him. So it ends with the Meir, Meir Sha'arim. Ever hear that place, Meir Sha'arim, in Jerusalem? Yeah. It says he found, he planted, and he found in that year Meir Sha'arim, which means a hundred times. Meir Sha'arim. Sha'ar means gate. Sha'arim means gates, a hundred gates. But it means like a hundred times. He planted and a hundred times more than what should have grown, grew. And it was a year that was a famine year and a land that wasn't great land. And it still grew a hundred times more than it should have. And that indicates the level of blessing of how blessed he was by God Almighty. Isaac and Rebecca were blessed. And, and Isaac's efforts in planting were, best, were blessed incredibly. Okay, that closes out the narrative. I want to focus on, and we'll stop here because it's getting late. Tomorrow, I'm going to go a little bit deeper in the story of Esau and, and Isaac. And I want to explain how, you know, typically we say, oh, one is holy, one is evil. I want to move away from that polarization. I want to move away from uh, um, caricaturizing them and get a little bit more nuance. Understand how we're all a little Esau and we're all a little Yaakov. And Esau is not so traif, so unholy as we might think Esau is. There is a redeeming element of Esav, part of our personality that can be redeemed. He chose not to actualize it, but at the core, there is a power of Esav that can be elevated for the good, which we will speak about tomorrow, and maybe a little bit more on the Abimelech story, as well as we will continue learning about the life and times of Isaac. We don't have much about Isaac. We don't know much about him. We know that a wife was found for him. We know that he prayed for a child and had two children. We know that he went down now to the Philistines and he pretended that his wife was his sister. Um, and we'll see tomorrow what we know about him otherwise. But we don't, of all the biblical, uh, of all the patriarchs and really the biblical figures, we know very little about Isaac. But we'll, we'll, uh, we'll get to know him a little bit better tomorrow. Make sense? Everybody can be redeemed, even if you're not so good, even if you're right. That's, that's the right. Message. That's the message. The ace of has, the, there's hope for ace of. But it also, it also it, tomorrow's message is also going to be very powerful for us insofar as understanding how to deal with children or other people that we might say are, they're beyond. They're, they're beyond. They, we got to have to say, you know, that's it. Just cut our loss and say, you know, you're out. You're, uh, you know, you're just, you're, you don't fit in the system, whatever system is the system, and that's it. We have to avoid doing that, and, and there's a danger in that. We'll talk about that tomorrow. All right. Questions, comments from an online crew? Ari, I have a question. Yes. Yeah, um, 
Rashi says, this, this goes back to the beginning, uh, that Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebecca to be his wife. I mean, that's what the Chumash says. Uh, Rashi says that for when Abraham came back from Mount Moriah, finding Isaac, he was informed that Rebecca was born. Right. Uh, and Isaac was 37 years old. Right. So that puts Rebecca's Isaac age at three. When she was, I'm sorry, what? That puts her age at three. At three. Right. So how old were they when they got married? According, got according married? to that narrative, 40 and three. Three. But that's not the only interpretation. That's, that's according to Rashi. But many commentaries have a difficulty with Rashi's timeline and the fact that how could that even, how could that, the story doesn't even make sense. Especially last week's story of her negotiating with the well and the, and the camels and all that stuff. And they're asking for a consent. What is she, three? Like, what's, what's going on? I mean, somebody could mature at a young age, could be a very old three-year-old, but even that is still, is still like uh, beyond the understanding, which is why commentaries have read it older. They have a different timeline. What that different timeline is, we discussed a little bit last week, and Ray did some research into it. There are, there are, other, um, there are other commentaries out there, so keep on looking. you find other timelines. I, you know, what, 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 what was her actual age? Depends who you ask. According to Rashi, how does it make sense? That's another question. Women don't tell you. They can't ask. Oh, Mike is pointing out something good. Women will never tell you their age, right? So, I mean, like, if you work backwards... Right? It might be that if you do the math, you're like, wait a second, you were three then? It's like, all right, whatever. Like, don't, ask, don't ask too many questions. Rabbi, right? yes. age is just a number and mine is unlisted. There, oh, good line. Excellent line. That's a great line to close it out. All right, Donna, excellent. Don't forget, tonight we have Hot Topics. Tomorrow night we have Outsmarting Antisemitism. Tomorrow day and Wednesday day and Friday day we have DPP, Daily Power Parsha, this class online on Zoom. So everyone check it out. The information is on the website, intangerishacademy.org. We also have upcoming a jewelry workshop for Hanukkah, led by Donna. This is pre-Hanukkah jewelry workshop. We also have the Kabbalah of the Matrix coming up. We have a few special events coming up. And we also have breaking news. Have not yet announced this or released this until now, because you know I love to break things at DPP. We are going to be doing a mitzvah day of cooking and baking for... The residents of Rebecca's tent, the shelter at Sheriff Israel, women's shelter. We're going to be cooking in November. We're going to be gathering on a Sunday afternoon, about 12.30. Gathering right here. We'll have all the food, and we'll have everybody that wishes to participate in this incredibly important mitzvah. We're going to be cooking for a few days' worth of food. So we'll be rolling up our sleeves and making a delicious... We have the menus already set. It's delicious food. We're going to have a great time doing a great mitzvah. So join us. Save the date. What's the date you're asking? What are we saving? So I'll give you the date right now. The date is, hold on. The date is going to be Sunday, November 21st. 21st. The Sunday before Thanksgiving. This will be uh, a few days worth of food for the, the folks that need it. All right. Looking forward. Save the date, please. Mike, great to see you. All right, everybody. Have a wonderful day. Yom Tov. Take care, guys. Thank you. Yashko. Bye, Ray. Bye, Donna. Bye, Sarah. Bye, Mark. Bye. Take care.